Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Shane Parrish, the founder of Farnham Street, host of the Knowledge Project podcast, and author of Brain Food, a weekly email full of timeless insight for business and life. Shane's goal is to uncover the best of what other people have already figured out. Our conversation covers Shane's background, work in a three-letter intelligence agency, and creation of Farnham Street. We then discuss the learning loop process and lessons from reading, interviewing, and writing. 
Lastly, we discuss Shane's application of those lessons to managing a team, investing, building relationships, and forming habits. Please enjoy my conversation with Shane Parrish. Shane, so great to see you. Ted, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'd love to go all the way back into your first learning experiences. Why don't we talk about like your childhood? Oh, man. <laughs> That's an interesting time for me. What would you like to know? Well, I don't know. What was the first thing that pops into your head? Or why did you say it was an interesting time? I was a military brat, so we moved everywhere. So the first school that I ended up going to two years in a row was grade 10 and 11. So every year was a new school. There was one time where I switched schools internally within the same city and we stayed in the city, but every other time it was just a move and it was, we were always on the go and that has pros and cons to it. One of which is you become a bit gregarious and you can make friends easily. The con being you have a hard time getting close to people because you know, at the end of the year, you're going to move away. And so being vulnerable and being open with people becomes more of a challenge. And luckily I met an amazing group of friends in high school and we became lifelong friends and that's been remarkable. That's great. So what was your relationship with learning back then? Oh man, you would have to force me to read a book. I was a straight D student. It was bad. I rebelled against school. I rebelled against authority it wasn't good. I mean, I remember I was in grade eight when I finally found a book that I wanted to read and it was on bank robbers. And I was reading this book and I was like, oh man, maybe this is my career path. Like I could do that. These guys don't seem super smart. And they were like the best in the world at what they did. And I was just fascinated by this book, but life changes pretty quickly. And I had some friends who came to my door that night and wanted to go out and play or cause trouble. And I said, no, because I was reading this book. Of course, I didn't tell them I was reading this book. I just sort of said, I'm not feeling that well. And I went back to my room and finished this book. And I was like, this life of crime was seeming <laughs> real to me at the time. And it wasn't a good situation. So I went to school the next day. My friends weren't there. Later found out that they, long story short, they got into a whole bunch of trouble that night. And had I been with them, my trajectory in life would have been a hundred percent different than it is. And I think that was my first real learning moment that I need to change this trajectory. And the only person that's going to do that is me. That was in high school? That was grade eight. So how old are you in grade eight? 12, 13? Yeah. So as you changed that trajectory or started to, how did that play out through high school and college? we all get put on this trajectory, right? So you're born in a certain country to certain parents. You have no control over any of that. Your parents have a certain socioeconomic status. You don't have any control over that. You get opportunities based on all of that. And then at some point, you just take control of your own trajectory. It might not be as high as other people's, but you control the slope to a large extent. And I think for me, it started to dawn on me in grade eight that I controlled my slope and nobody was going to control it for me. And it's a slow sort of realization, but I was in grade nine. I had three rules, which was I need to know where you are at all time, no drugs and no sex in the house. And those were my rules. And I don't know if I was ready for those rules, but I certainly grew into them very quickly. That was a lot of freedom to have. And when you get that much freedom, your life can go in a lot of different directions. And 
what I really realized then was my peer group is going to make a huge difference in the amount of trouble I get into and the grades I get in school and all that I can do in life. And I hung around with a guy named Kevin Sharp in grade nine who introduced me to computers. And that just kept me out of trouble for the next three, four years. So take me through to college and you're entering the working world. How do you think about what you wanted to do at that point in time? Oh, there's only one career option for me, man. I wanted to go work for an intelligence agency and had a computer science degree. And if I didn't get the job, the actual specific job in the agency I wanted, I was just going to go back and do my MBA. So I wanted that job and I wanted to work with exceptional people doing something that I thought was really challenging and really fun. And at the infancy, I was, I think, one of the first six or eight people in the group that is now 400 and some. So it grew a lot since then. I started two weeks before September 11th and the world changed after September 11th. And you get thrown into decisions you're not ready to make, leadership positions that you have no skills to assume, and you have to do your best. And as much as I didn't like the circumstances that created that time, some of the best moments of my life and some of the best friends I've ever made come from there. So take me through that path. You come out of college, you take this job in intelligence right into 9-11. And so what were those circumstances that put you into either leadership position or decisions that you had to make that you weren't prepared to? Just necessity. The world changed for intelligence agencies literally overnight. And we went from this obscure agency in Canada with no sign outside to all of a sudden there's a sign, there's funding, we have people. I think we ended up growing from 400 or 500 when I started to, I think, well over 2000 when I left. It was just rapid, rapid ascension of you have to do jobs that you're not prepared to do because that's what your country needs of you. And how can you complain, right? There's troops in theater that are risking their lives and you're sitting behind a computer or trying to do your best and somebody's asking you to do something and you don't quite know how to do it. You can't just throw your arms up and say, I have no idea. So you become incredibly resourceful. And as we've institutionalized a lot of that over the last two decades or so, that probably wouldn't happen again today. But that level of the authority that you had to make decisions back then at such a young age was amazing. And I would say overall, incredibly successful for the agencies. So recognizing full well that you may have to kill me after telling me this, I'm curious if there's an example of one of those decisions you could share that thrust you into a position you weren't ready to, you had to make a decision, you figured things out, and that left a real imprint on you. I can't really share any details about it. I just remember walking home one night about two o'clock in the morning after making a really tough decision. And I went in the next day to my boss and I said, I really don't think I know what I'm doing. Like, I don't think that I'm, I'm capable of this level of judgment, right? I'm 26 at the time and I'm making decisions that affect not only our employees, but our country and our country's relationship with other countries. And, and my boss sort of chuckled and said, nobody knows what they're doing. We're just doing the best we could. And I felt that that was an unsatisfying answer. And as much as I appreciated it, because it made me feel good in the moment, I was like, no, we deserve better. Our citizens deserve better. Our troops in theater deserve better. And I'm going to take it upon myself to try to get better at making decisions. But the problem is there's no class called decision-making. There's no nobody to teach you. I mean, normally you have mentors, but when you're running around a thousand miles an hour and everybody's working 12 to 14 hours a day, there's no real time to mentor people either. 
there's no real time to walk through decisions or judgments and try to learn from other people. It's really difficult. So you, again, you just have to figure this stuff out on your own. That was the time. That was the circumstance. And you just deal with what you got. And so what'd you do with that insight? Oh, I started following people around the organization. I mean, I was already working long days and then I started showing up at meetings I wasn't invited to. And back then you could do that and you could just sit in and I approached people and I started walking through my thinking with them and just asking them to specifically poke holes in it, people that I respected in the agency. And I felt like I was getting a little bit better, but it wasn't working. And then you end up Googling and you start reading. And then I did an MBA. I was hoping that that would help me. And of course, I did that full time while working full time because you couldn't get time off then. And I got introduced to Charlie Munger around that time again. I think I, I was acquainted with him earlier, but I had never really paid attention to him. And then the world started to make sense. You got to consume information at the time that you need it. And I think I wasn't ready for it earlier. Same information. I was like, oh my God, this guy makes decisions for a living. He thinks the world's interconnected. That's been my experience. Like you can't do only one thing. You're always affecting all of these other things when you do one thing. And I was a very logical thinker and that appealed to my computer science brain. And I just started devouring all of what he wrote and then went on this quest to try to come up with a better understanding of how the world works. I mean, we specialize so deeply. You go to high school, you start specializing in science or arts. You go to university, you further specialize. And one of the reasons we specialize is because you want to be employable. So I couldn't do computer science and liberal arts degree and try to effectively compete for a job in computer science against somebody who's full-time computer science. But when you get out of work and you get promoted and you start doing things, those skills quickly fall away. I can't solve people problems with computer science as much as I would have loved to some days, right? Like computers, you give it the same instructions, it's going to work the same way every time. But people don't work that way at all. They're biological. And you start having to apply different levels of thinking. And I had huge gaps, huge blind spots in what I knew, and I still do. And life is just trying to figure out where your blind spots are and covering them up. I really want to dive into that whole learning process. And before I do, just from a practical perspective, how long did you stay at the agency? And then what happened in the creation of Farnham Street after that? I was there 15 years. I started Farnham Street while I was there doing my MBA. Originally, it was 68131-1440.blogger.com, which we don't own that domain again. But for your listeners, that might make sense, right? 68131 is a zip code for Berkshire Hathaway. 1440 is the unit number in Hewitt Plaza. And the reason I chose that is I didn't want to password protect a website. And I figured nobody's going to type in a string of digits to get to a website. But that was really just to keep track of what I was learning and interconnect things, right? You could use hyperlinks. And so I could connect ideas. I started going back through a lot of the original literature and going direct to the source, which is something that'll probably come up over and over again in this conversation. But high quality ideas often originate when you have high quality inputs and getting to better inputs was definitely a blessing in university. I don't need to read the summary anymore. I can read what Kahneman's writing and Tversky and all these guys and read directly from Munger. I don't need to read a summary of Munger. And I felt like that that was a really good way to spend my time. But of course, the website was anonymous because working in an intelligence agency, you're not exactly allowed to have a public profile. And it was just for me. But then, you know, all of a sudden I woke up in 2012, 2013, and we had 25,000 readers. And I was like, holy cow, this is like resonating with people. And this is 
this is kind of cool. And it was mostly Wall Street, which was also kind of awesome because I always wanted to do more with sort of investing. And I was appealing to that audience, I think, with a lot of the stuff that I was learning and hopefully they were growing with me. So I want to turn to the learning process itself. And you really have this learning community. And I guess we could break it down and let's just start with reading because so much of what you've said comes from reading and learning. How do you go about reading in such a way that you can take out lessons and have them stay with you? Well, let's start with what the learning process is, right? So most people think that the learning process is you have an experience and then you learn something. And I tend to think that that's not enough. You need to reflect on it. So there's a loop of learning and I call it the learning loop. And at the top, you have an experience. That experience can be a direct experience. You're experiencing something. That experience can be a conversation with somebody. As we're talking right now, you can have an experience through this conversation. Or that experience can be reading a book or consuming other forms of information. But that doesn't mean you've learned anything from what I've said. It'd be easy to forget this conversation after. It'd be easy to sort of move on to the next thing where learning really starts to supercharge is reflection. So you have to take the information that we've talked about and chew on it and digest it and get nuanced details about when it works and when it doesn't work. And then what happens is your brain creates an abstraction. And so we're always trying to fill up these rich sources of information in our brain. And the abstraction allows us to take action, right? And the action gives us experience. The output of action is experience. So you have this loop at the top, you have experience, then you have reflection, then you have abstraction, and then you have action. And they all go together. The problem is when we read, we're often consuming other people's abstractions. We're getting filtered information. It's dumbed down. We just want the gist. We don't want the details. And so we don't codify when it works and when it doesn't work. And what happens when we don't codify when it works and when it doesn't work and we don't have rich, high-quality primary sources of information is we have to rely on direct memory. And so if you think in computer science terms, direct memory is like searching Google with quotes. I need an exact match to get a result. But we don't work that way. We don't make decisions that way. We make decisions through association. We make decisions through pattern matching. And the way to get your brain primed for better pattern matching is to consume better information so that you don't need a direct match. You can do the reflection. And then by doing the reflection, you've actually told your brain, here's what the environment is. Here's why it's likely to work. Here's why it's not likely to work. You still have the abstraction, but now you have this rich metadata associated with that abstraction that allows you to do associated pattern matching. And that allows you to take action and then get an experience again. So you have this loop of learning. And so if you think of reading, to come back to the question, it's the way to suck up the brain of people. But we mostly consume like potato chips, right? We're on this fast food diet of, I just want the quick hit. I just want the gist. I want the 20-minute version of the podcast instead of the hour-long version of the podcast. Why? Because I'm so busy. But what's happening is just the illusion of knowledge. My friend Tim Urban has this analogy that I really like, which is the chef and the line cook. And so if you follow the recipe and you get a good result, there's no difference really between the chef and the line cook. You can get a very similar output. But if something goes wrong, the chef immediately sort of understands, oh, you need more salt. You stirred it too fast. You didn't put it in for long enough. They can troubleshoot real time, figure it out and correct. But the line cook doesn't. They don't have the experience. They don't have the reflection. They don't understand how things interconnect. 
And so what we really want to do is if you're learning, you don't want to learn from the line cook. You want to learn from the chef and you want to consume the highest quality information that you can. And I think that that goes back to what are the sources of the information that we consume? What level of filtering has happened? A lot of our information sources, think of your political opinions or your opinions on hot topics or policy issues. A lot of that comes from headlines. A lot of it comes from reporters who are writing about 60 different topics a year, have nothing to do with one another. And you're reading there and it sounds really good to you. And you're getting an abstraction, a filtered abstraction, but it's not a high quality source of information. It doesn't mean that there's no signal in it. It just means there's a ton of noise in it. You have to pick it out. So I think when you're reading, you want to go back to what are high quality sources of information? Can I go back to the original person who had these thoughts and work my way through it? I don't want somebody to tell me about evolution. I want to learn from Charles Darwin. How did he see it through his eyes? And I think that that allows you to start the real scaffolding, the real sort of connections that are going to give you the ability to do associative matching and make better decisions. So if you start with that important lens of making sure you're consuming the right information or from that original source, there's still tons of information and lots of original sources, you know, depending on what topic you're talking about. How do you go about retaining as much as you can of what it is you're reading? Well, the really cool thing when you reflect on things is you often layer it on to things you already know. So you're building this latticework, if you will, or this scaffolding, this mental scaffolding. And so it naturally connects to other things. And then when you use that information in your day-to-day -day life, whether it's through overfitting in terms of you've just learned something new and you're trying to see it everywhere and you overfit it and you're wrong, but you're practicing applying that knowledge. And by applying that knowledge, it becomes not only do you get spaced repetition, but you get feedback on whether it's correct or not. Again, further adding to the nuance in your brain about when it works and when it doesn't work. That richness allows you to apply what you're learning and retain it. The goal of, of learning is it's awesome to learn. And we often pick things. We think maybe in an investing analogy that our friend Peter Kaufman has is index funds outperform because we don't know which ones are going to perform the best. And so the knowledge of the world is the same, right? We pick and choose what we think is most valuable, but we're not often right about what's most valuable. We just want to remove the blind spots. So the more we know, the more we can see. And the more we can see, the closer to reality we are. One of the biggest problems with that is dealing with how the world works versus how you think it should work. And it's hard dealing with situations where you think it should work one way and it doesn't work that way. Are there tools or techniques that you've developed that help you bridge that gap between seeing the world as it is working versus how you'd like it to or you think it should? We think the world should be fair and just, and we think it should agree with our sense of fairness and justice. And it doesn't always line up that way, right? So a lot of us just spend so much time effectively pushing against this headwind instead of getting a tailwind. I think that if we just stop thinking about how it should and shouldn't work, which is an opinion-based approach, and we start seeing more objectively, well, this is how it does work, that allows us to get a better sense and make better decisions and get better sort of information about what we're trying to accomplish. And there are people out there who are going to do things that we don't think they should do, and we're going to do things that other people don't think that we should do. And I think should is just a really weird way to sort of choose and think about things like think about how often people say i can't do that 
And they can't do it because they don't want to do it. It's not because they can't actually do it. They're choosing not to do it. But just those wording nuances change how you interact with yourself and they change how you see the world. And I think it's really important that we own our role in that, which is the world's not going to work the way that I want it to. I need to be able to see the instances where it's not working in the way that I want it to and not get stuck banging my head against a wall thinking it should work one way when it works another way. Before I move on from reading, there's this notion of you're reading something, there's knowledge, you want to apply it, and that's the way that you can really internalize it. How do you go about digesting what it is you're reading at the time, whether it's a book or an article, so that you really can internalize the lesson? Yeah. So what I tend to do is if I'm really trying to learn from a book, I do something I call the blank sheet approach, which is I take a sheet of paper, grab the book, and I write down everything I know about the topic before I even open the book and start reading, almost like a mind map. And then I'll start reading. I'll read the first chapter. And then after the end of that, I'll add to my mind map and I'll connect ideas on the mind map from what I just learned in the book. And I'll write a one or two sentence summary of that chapter, usually in the book itself. And then often, because you don't sit down and read for like six hours. So what I'll do the next time I pick the book up is I'll look at the mind map. And I've had two different colors of ink, right? So let's say I use blue for the original one that I come up with. Red is the first chapter. Then I'll use black for the next chapter, but I'll review it before I read the next chapter. And the reason that I want to review it is not only spaced repetition, but it's priming my brain with the scaffolding I need for the next chapter already. And that allows me to digest a lot quicker, retain a lot longer. And then at the end, you get these one-page summary sheets of the book where you can go back and you can actually see your knowledge build up over time. So you're getting positive reinforcement about what you're learning. So you can actually visually see that you're learning something from the book. And I think that that's a key sort of feedback that we lack often because learning happens, it's intangible a lot of the time. We don't see that we're actually learning. And because we don't see we're learning, it becomes harder and harder to keep doing what we're doing sometimes unless you're reading for enjoyment, which is a different pastime. But when you're trying to do that, and then at the end, you can review all your chapter notes. So you have these one to two sentence summaries. But what you really have is this mind map of the book, you know, which chapter, which idea is found in if you color coded it as you went. And I think that that's just a really effective way to learn how to read. But we're never taught that in school, which I find also really interesting. How'd you figure that out? Trial and error. (laughs) But it works super effectively. We've taught it to thousands of people now. And everybody who tries it and does it is like, this is supercharged my retention and my ability to apply information. And you can just have a binder of these one pages. So like every six months, you can just pull that out and just sort of like cycle through it with the spaced repetition again. And then you can start connecting ideas from different books, different topics. It's really effective way to do things. And it doesn't take a lot of time. Do you use the same application with articles? So much of what people are reading now are from blogs or whatever's online. Yeah, you could totally do it with blogs, but it would be different, right? Because blogs tend to be sometimes all over the place, different topics, different subjects. I think what you would want to do is just have core themes that you're consuming information about, whether it's productivity or a specific discipline, and then have those pages available to you. You also don't want to put them on the computer. You want a pen and paper. So I think that if you had them at your desk, you could totally make it work for online reading, but the way that I had sort of designed it was for what is the most optimal way that I can think of to read a book and extract the lessons from it. 
So I want to switch over to another form of communication, which is talking. And we've talked a lot about podcasting and your fantastic podcast. How have you approached interviewing experts across all different fields to learn from them? I'm just an idiot with a microphone, man. I'm just curious to listen to other people when they talk. And I think that if someone's giving me the time to come on our show, The Knowledge Project, and they have my complete undivided attention, and I'm super interested in what they have to say, I think when guests really open up, it's because I'm really interested in detail. I want nuance. I want I want to go way below the abstraction. And then people love that because now they can, they can get out of this click play mode, right? Like often you'll have somebody who's on the same show and they'll often repeat almost verbatim an answer to a question. It's like Warren Buffett does this perfect example, right? Like he's been saying the same stories since like 1990. He just clicks play. It's almost word for word. You know when to laugh without even listening. He's not thinking in that moment. He's just sort of like, oh, this will satisfy you. It'll give you some humor. But really, you want to get out of that and you want to get people out of that. And I think part of the way that you do that is you start asking them to go deeper on that. Well, what does that mean? Explain that to me. And I mean, I'm genuine. I just often have no friggin' idea what it means. And one of the biggest pieces of criticism I get is we don't challenge guests enough or we don't push back on what they think. But I don't think that that's my role. My role is not to challenge them in that sense, because I don't think that that's not going to make them feel safe. That's not going to get us the most information. If we want nuance and detail and we want them thinking on the fly, they need to feel safe. We're not there to make them look bad in any way, shape, or form. We're just there to suck their brain, as my kids call it, with as much information as we can in a little period of time as we can. How do you go about preparing when I know this, your guests just canvas such a wide range of fields? It's a lot of work. Like it's two or three days per podcast, especially if I'm unfamiliar with the topic. And I think that part of what I do is I try to read their most recent book or article, obviously, but also I want to listen to other people interview them. Why? Because then I know what they're going to say and I know where I want to go deeper and I know what questions they're clicking play on and what questions they're not. And that really gives me a fast track for sort of themes. And I used to walk into interviews with tons of questions, like I'm going to ask these 30 questions. And if you go back to the Knowledge Project, we're on episode, I think 96 came out today. But if you go back and you listen to like number 18, I'm all over the map. I'm just reading questions and you know, it gets really good answers, but the guests don't tend to open up as much. And there's non sequiturs all over the place. And now I just sort of go in with themes. Like I want to talk to you about this, but I have an idea already how I think you're going to answer the question. So if you don't answer it that way, it's surprising. And now I want to dive into it. And if you do answer it that way, well, now I want to really go deeper on that. And I mean it, I really want to understand what they understand. I want to see the world through their eyes. I want to understand them so intimately that I can state their opinion as well as they can. And I actually see and feel what the world looks like through their eyes. And that's my goal. I don't know if we ever quite get there, but I'd love to do a podcast weekly. I just don't know if I could do the time for it. How do you go about the process of deciding what you're going to have on? 
Oh, that's easy. I just follow my curiosity. Like I'm literally all over the map and I'll get on themes. Like in the 60s, we did this big kick on relationships and sex and all of these things that we had just never talked about before. The blog is really about cognitive tools and the podcast is really about helping you explore life. And life is all of these interconnected things. A, I've never really had a conversation with somebody who wasn't a partner on sex. And all of a sudden I'm interviewing like a sexual therapist and we're talking about armpit sex, which is actually a thing. And I'm just like, oh my God, the world is crazy. And I think that that's awesome because I get this platform where I can talk to people about all these different subjects that I'm not scared to look like an idiot. And I really just want to learn about all these different things. There's so many amazing people out there. And is it, what is it you know about the world that I should know now? Or what is it you know that's going to help me do something or just help me understand the fabric of reality better? How do you go about reaching out to people who are top of their field in a field that you know nothing about or are just learning about? Sometimes it's as easy as like, we have a mutual friend. Sometimes I get no response. Jeff Bezos, if you're listening, emailed you a few times. But generally speaking, I mean, we're sort of large enough, I think, from a podcasting point of view where people have heard us. We're getting 200, 250,000 downloads an episode. So I think most people have at least come across us at one point or another, and that makes it a lot easier. When did that part of the flywheel pivot for you? I would say probably really in the 30s, 40s. And then Adam Grant opened up a whole bunch of doors for me in terms of interviewing people and just direct connections, which is super warm. And those are easy. And once you get names that people recognize, it just becomes so much easier. It shouldn't. It's social proof. But I mean, it's very effective to be like, oh, Daniel Kahneman's been on. And then people are like, oh, my God. Well, of course I have to go on. I can't say no to that. He doesn't do a lot of interviews. And we try not to use any of that marketing. We just reach out to people and say, I really want to talk to you about this thing. And often our outreach emails don't include stats, don't include previous guests. They're just like from this guy named Shane at frontofstreetblog.com. And it's just like, I really want to talk to you about this thing. And you'd be surprised. I mean, people are really open, I think, with sharing their knowledge. And if you're genuinely curious about it and you're not trying to get anything out of it, like we're, we're not trying to make them look bad we're not trying to sell anything through them, then I think it's very helpful for them to come on or want to come on. What's most surprised you in your learnings from the podcast? Just that I can be interested in so many things. Like I think kids have helped me do this too, but I'm so curious about so many things. Like I want to talk about music and I want to talk about wine and I want to talk about what it's like to run a restaurant and I want to talk about sex and I want to talk about relationships and I want to talk about risk and investing. And I want to talk with people who are breaking into computers or defending against that. And I just really enjoy the variety of people that I get to talk to and seeing some of the patterns in exceptional responses and exceptional people. And I just think we're putting together the highest quality source of knowledge in a non-specific domain it's not about investing. It's not about, I mean, we cover that a lot with some of the best people in the world, but it's not necessarily about that. It's sort of like, remember that Forrest Gump quote, you never know what you're going to get. It's just like a box of chocolates. I think that that's the podcast, right? Like one day it's going to be venture capital investing at the seed stage. The next day it's going to be a fortune five CEO and 
the next day it's going to be Esther Perel talking about infidelity or relationships. I love that though, right? Because life is all of those things. And if you can find a high quality source of information, that becomes super valuable. But it's weird to have such a random long form podcast. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now back to the show. So when you have such a breadth of information, both from your own reading and then podcasts, and you know, at times, or I guess weekly, you distill it in writing. And I'm curious, like, what do you decide to write? I think on the blog, we have a couple of different writers now. It's not just me. And I'm trying to do different things right now with writing. I'm trying to write a book, which is not going so well during a pandemic. I use writing as a means to understand. So when we talk about reflection being part of learning, writing is where I find out that I don't understand something as well as I do, because now I'm trying to communicate it not only to other people, but at first I'm trying to communicate it to myself. And that's really eye-opening in terms of what I know and don't know and how well I can explain it and how well I can explain it. And you don't want to go so abstract that it's meaningless, but you want to have some sort of logical flow or understanding to the ideas. And I think that writing is a way that you can sort of find those blind spots we were talking about in your understanding of a particular subject or the world. And that allows you to be like, oh, okay, well, now I know where I need to go learn something new. Now I know where I have a gap and what you choose to do with that is up to you. And I think there's this big thing about Amazon and how they do these six page memos. And I think that's super effective because now you're creating a narrative. It has to be cohesive. It has to make sense. It has to have some flow to it. And it's very structured thinking. Whereas if you think of a PowerPoint, it's designed to persuade you. It's designed in a different way. It's still structured thinking, but the abstraction level is much higher. So the details are fewer, the nuances are less. And now it it becomes harder and harder to disagree with as you abstract and abstract and abstract. And so when you think about what would be more effective for making decisions in a meeting or getting input into people's heads, it would clearly be the Amazon approach of doing these six-page memos. Does it take longer? I don't know. I've never spoken with anybody who's worked there, but I think that it's a really fascinating way to get an organization to start structuring their thinking. And not only that, the cool thing is you're learning from the thinking of other people. So when you think of knowledge transfer in an organization, what often happens is we give the abstraction to people, which is like, if this, do this but we don't tell them 
here's the experience I had. Here's all the reflection and nuance. Here's the abstraction. We just basically say, here's the procedure. And before you know it, you become the person working at McDonald's. The fries go down for 90 seconds. If they're burnt, too bad, right? You don't apply any judgment to it. And then you slowly get reinforced further and further into following these procedures because you can never be wrong if you follow the procedure. You can never be wrong if you just do the thing and you don't apply any judgment. You just do the thing that you were told you're supposed to do, regardless of situation. You can't be faulted. And we live in a culture where you just can't go up to somebody and be like, no, you should have clearly known that you have to diverge in this case. But we don't help people learn that because we don't share the thinking. We just share the abstractions. So again, circling back to Amazon, I think it's a really good way to past knowledge in the organization and learn from other people in different disciplines. I hope they have this database of them internally that you can just search and read. You have a small team that you run with all of your activities. I know a lot of the investment offices leaders that I talk to also have small teams. I'd love to know of all of the lessons and mental models and everything that you've learned from doing this over the years, which are the most important ones that you apply in managing your team? Right now, it's patience and self-care. Everybody is going through something. Nobody's at their best. And there's a large part of me that is like, go, 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 and very type A and driven. And why aren't we doing more? And we're not working up to enough productivity, even though people feel like they're working longer, the productivity is not the same. And, and then there's another part of me that's super empathetic and understanding and it's hard for me to reconcile those two things and be patient and try to get people through it when I really want to do more and more and more and I have all these ideas and I want to execute. But I think that I just try to think about where do I want to go eventually? Who do I want to go with? How do I want to treat the people that I want to go with? And what puts us on the path to get us there long-term instead of short-term? We have these competing interests, right? public companies have this three-month quarterly routine and ritual, and it's like a sprint every three months. And I think that I want to do something over the next 50 years. So the next three months in the grand scheme of things is probably not going to make a huge difference. But the people that I'm with and the people that I accomplish things with and the people that help us do all of these wonderful things that we do, their mental happiness and their happiness with working with us is important. And I think that that's something that the younger version of me would have just been more prone to chew through people. And okay, well, next, sort of the Bill Belichick, next man up philosophy, you can't do the job somebody else can. I think that this older, more mellow version of me, still driven, still ambitious, but also completely understanding of people and circumstance and adapting the way that I approach leading the team to circumstance and time. What models do you use or practices do you use in managing your team to, to effectuate that balance? We're always thinking about the map and the territory and stats don't tell the full story and what is it we're trying to create over the long term. So, you know, our, our particular page view count on a month, we don't even look at it month to month, but that is a map and it's definitely not representative of what we're trying to accomplish. We try to do projects that have no immediate payoff. So no first order positive payoff, but second, third, fourth order positive payoffs. Our book series is a great example of that, which is the great metal models. And we're trying to give everybody the big ideas they would have learned in university, distilled into a practical and easy to apply way. 
However, the flip side of that is like, that is a lot of our time, a lot of our effort. Publishing books is not for the faint of heart, especially when you're doing, we're working with amazing contractors, but we're still doing all the design, all the printing, all the shipping, all the storage, the warehouse. Our former book distributor basically went bankrupt in March. You're dealing with all these things that take away from anything in the short term because we're trying to do something that creates a body of work for people in the world that is easily accessible because we want to help equalize opportunity in thinking across the globe. And that is sort of a second, third, fourth order benefit. But we have to have projects that pay the bills on a day-to-day basis. And we have to have these long-term projects that are like, oh, this might or might not work, but we're going to make a four or five-year bet on what we think the likely outcome is going to be. And I think that blending those two is really good. And I think second order thinking is really effective. I mean, whether you want to call it whatever. I mean, if you eat a chocolate bar today, it's going to feel good. You get this first order positive, but second order negative, right? You're less healthy. You do it over and over again and you're going to run into problems. And I think that so often we just were taught to look for that immediate payoff. And there's a huge competitive advantage to people that can delay gratification beyond the first order. So try to look for things that are first order negative second, third, fourth order positive, right? Like going to the gym. For me personally, that is a first order negative. I don't look forward to going and get my butt kicked at the gym or any of that stuff, but it gives me second, third, fourth order positives, right? I have more energy at work. I'm healthier. I'm probably going to live longer. And I think that those are really important things to consider. We've already dove in in some sense on this compendium and really your first book of mental models. You've talked about first principles, talked about second order thinking. I would love to hear more about the concept of the mental model of inversion. Tell me where you're going to die and you don't want to go there, right? So that was the original concept of inversion that I got from Munger. He's like, tell me where I'm going to die because I definitely don't want to go there. And I think that that's really an important way to sort of look at things, right? And often we just don't know the right answer. So when you know the right answer, you know where to go and what you're going to do. But when you don't know, and there's a lot of uncertainty, it's like if we can avoid all the bad outcomes, then we can't help but get ourselves a good outcome, right? So it means just approaching things backwards and being like, what do we want to avoid and how do we avoid that? And I think that that's super powerful. How about Hanlon's razor? When's the last time somebody cut you off, right? You get irate in the car. You're like, who the hell are you to cut me off? But it's just, the guy's just being stupid, right? Like he doesn't know who you are. He doesn't care who you are. And we go through this all over life, right? We get these little slights. We're sensitive to them, mostly because it relates to our biology. And we have this hierarchy instinct. And often our response is, who are you to do this to me? You can't do this to me. And I think that, we just start going like, oh, they're malicious. They're trying to get us. And most people just don't even think about us. They don't care about us. They have no idea what's going on in their mind. And I think that there's often other reasonable explanations for this stuff. And I, I usually try to choose the most respectful interpretation, which is asking myself what the world would have to look like for me to exhibit that behavior. What would my worldview have to be for me to do what this person is doing? And the second is, is there a more reasonable explanation for this than they're out to get me. And I think the answer in most cases is you'll be surprised. (laughs) In a lot of the process, the mental models really encapsulates itself where you started on decision-making. I know you've done a lot of work on it. Annie's a good friend of both of ours. What are your most important 
lessons and tools of decision-making that are both maybe similar to some of the things she says and in some sense your own interpretation of it? Well, I think that often we're going for speed when we should be going for velocity. So the difference is velocity has a direction and a vector attached to it and speed doesn't. So you can drive really fast and circles around a track or you can drive from LA to New York. One of those is getting you to a destination. The other is just going really fast. And I think often in organizations, we're trying to do those things. And Annie brings a really structured and analytical way to approach decisions, which I think we both appreciate. And there's also other ways and behaviors that we can bring to decisions. We have a mutual friend, Randall Stutman, who has this concept of as soon as possible or as late as possible. When should you decide, right? And I think that 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 codified something that's been given name to something that I've always felt, which I thought was really interesting the first time I heard it. And most of us make decisions in the middle. We're not making them as soon as possible. We're not making them as late as possible. We just don't want them hanging out in our brains. So we make them sort of in the middle because we get tired of them. And then there's recognizing evolution and adaptation and recognizing when you're in an arms race and when you're working harder and harder, but you're not getting further ahead. And how do you get out of that stuff? And I think that the world is just really rich and detailed and There are structured approaches to decision-making and a lot of people use decision trees and they complicated Excel sheets, but ultimately like you have to know how to think and you have to remove your blind spots if you really want to avoid the worst possible outcomes. And I know you've got a whole course on decision-making that's coming up. Is that right? Yeah. We open it once or twice a year. It's called Decision by Design. It's 11 practicable skills that you can bring to any decision and 12 weeks The 12th week is sort of a summary and it's super helpful for people in terms of here are all the things I've learned about decision-making from some of the best people in the world, including Randall and Adam Robinson and a whole bunch of other people who practice this for a living and the hard fought lessons learned that I've learned through trial and error. And hopefully, so you don't have to. I'd love to turn to investing. I know alongside of all of this work on thinking and decision-making that you do some investing, and I'd love to hear what it is you do and how you go about it. So we invest publicly and privately and in sort of the operating businesses that we own and run. And I think that that's just an applied form of thinking. And I think that we have a company called Cyrus Partners that does investing in private companies. I do a little bit of public market investing, although less and less these days. And I think one of the lessons that I've learned through doing that is it's your batting average doesn't really, nobody cares about your batting average, right? The magnitude of the wins matters a lot when you're talking about wealth creation. And we don't do a ton of venture capital investment. We only have two investments in companies that I would say are not cash flow positive at the moment. And We're not doing a ton of that, but I think that a lot of people just underestimate how important key wins can be and betting with your conviction. So we bet very heavily when we have strong conviction. Last year, we put 90% of our capital to work in one particular investment. And I think that hopefully that works out really well. And if it doesn't, then I'm the only one who's going to suffer. We don't have a fund. We don't co-invest with other people. And so it's just on me. And I I love having that responsibility. And I I love having that ability to also just sit on my hands and not do anything for years and let capital build up and then all of a sudden deploy it when I think it makes sense. And there's a situation that warrants it. Who's the we in Cyrus? 
oh, oh, I say we, but it's really me. It's not an LP. There's no partnership structure. There's no anything. And we've been very fortunate. I mean, we've partnered with amazing people like Andrew Wilkinson on some deals. And it's awesome to just work with people that you trust. And it's amazing to be able to walk away from people that you don't trust or you get a bad feel from without any consequence. You don't have to explain your decision to anybody. You don't have to go back to your fund and be like, oh, we didn't do anything. We did nothing this year up until last week. And then we did three deals in the last week, two of which were small, one of which was larger. And I love that just periods of inactivity. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, these situations present themselves. They look like reasonable risk reward bets, or I really want to partner with this person. And then we can do that regardless of what we expect the, or I expect the financial return to be. I want to work with this person and I believe in what they're doing and I want to support that. And I believe to some extent the results will take care of themselves. Knowing everything you do about the, call it the mental models of how markets work and areas of inefficiency and how hard it is, how have you thought about your own investing? And you could break it down and just what you're looking at in terms of your, call it deal flow. Yeah, I mean, that's super interesting. And the way that I originally thought about this was through a mutual friend of ours, Brent Bishore, and looking at buying private businesses and blue collar spaces. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. And I explored that for a couple of years, really in depth and, and never got comfortable sort of pulling the trigger and then ended up making a whole bunch of technology investments right before the pandemic, which paid off really well, I think. But that was a lot of luck and it was just a lot of going where I felt comfortable and where I understood stuff or where I could find people to partner with. And I'm still looking for blue collar businesses. I think there's huge opportunities in that space to sort of help those businesses with the knowledge that we bring to the table. The flip side of that is it's a tough industry. It's super competitive. You got to compete with people like Brent, who's super smart. And it's getting harder and harder, especially now with the pandemic, right? You would think that there'd be more opportunities. And we've approached a couple of businesses and tried to inject equity. And it's not as easy as that. So it's definitely boots on the ground and see you in the trenches. <laughs> One of the trickiest aspects of investing in the people you want and relationships and deal sourcing is the whole concept of a network. And with this period of time over the pandemic, I'm curious how you found, call it networking or building relationships with people. Maybe there are people on the show that you didn't know before. Anything that you've learned about how to build and foster relationships during this time? I think it's really hard to start a connection during a pandemic or Zoom or anything like that. I think it's really much easier to continue a connection you already have. And why is that? Because there's some level of trust already established. We met each other. We knew each other a little bit. It makes this call so much easier. And I think that those relationships, and this will be a byproduct of how organizations suffer as a result of work from home. One of the things that people aren't really talking about are the, the most difficult skills to transfer are now going to be incredibly more difficult to transfer, especially for new employees, let alone existing employees. Existing employees you have a relationship with, new employees you don't have a relationship with. And so Farnham Street, I'm so lucky between the Knowledge Project and Farnham Street that we just have a warm reception almost everywhere we go. I couldn't have bought that. It's just been created over sort of a decade. And 
most people just come in with this level of friendliness that you would only have after you've met somebody. And I think being Canadian and naturally trusting at the outset, that reinforces that as well. I have this thing where I'd rather trust by default and be wrong a few times in my life and suffer those consequences than always be skeptical and have all the byproducts that come along with that, which is more lawyers, less trusting, going slower, always watching if somebody's going to stab me in the back. And I just don't think that that's a good way or effective way to live. Now, I'll caveat that with you never want to go to zero. And if you're making a big, bad or big decision, you sort of want to calibrate it differently. But general day-to-day meetings, like I just think people are genuinely amazing and they want to do good things. And I think when you approach it like that, you tend to see that and people respond to that. And I think because they're already responding in a warm way, it just fast tracks those relationships, whether it's from investing or getting people on the podcast or just striking up a conversation and learning something interesting. I had a couple other things I want to ask you about. The first is the most obvious, which is like you mentioned that you're struggling with a book. And it just doesn't seem like struggling in terms of filtering and putting information down. What is this book that you've been thinking about? I don't want to talk about that yet because I don't want to get in trouble, especially if I don't end up writing it. I think we all have to think through a lens of opportunity cost. And I really want to write a book. And there's also, it's a pandemic. At the end of the day, I got to take care of my kids. I got to take care of my parents. I got to take care of my family and anything that gets in the way of that is just going to fall down and it's not going to be a super high priority. And my kids aren't in school at the moment, so it's a lot more challenging in some ways. And we're just adapting and doing the best we can. Same as work, Farnham Street, I got to keep things going. And if people aren't always available or doing everything that we need to be done, I mean, the buck stops with me, whether it's taking out the garbage or making sure that we follow up and we say we follow up. I want to make sure that happens. And those things are really important to me before I take on other projects. With that said, I'm probably about 30% done the book. I just haven't found a lot of time to go back to it. And I think that I want to get back to that. It just hasn't enabled itself when all these other things are mental health of my kids right now is way more important than writing a book. And I think that if I don't end up writing the book, I don't end up writing the book. And I won't regret that at all because I'm doing what I need to be doing in the moment that I'm not going to have any second doubts over. There's one last area I want to chat about before we turn to a couple of closing questions, and that's habits. I was fortunate before he became a New York Times bestselling author to have you introduce me to James Clear a couple of years ago. And from him, I learned so much from him and that book. And I'd love to know what you've learned about taking all this knowledge that you acquire and turning it into habits. The biggest thing I do is I I create these automatic behaviors that put me on the path to success. So I think about almost backwards, right? What do I want to accomplish? And then ask myself, what is somebody who does that, who accomplishes that? What does it look like for them to accomplish that? And so one thing that I do is I'm not a huge fan of meetings, calls, uh, all of that. So I don't do many podcast interviews. I'm usually on the other side. I'm a bit shy talking about this stuff, but I don't take meetings in the morning. I don't usually, with very few exceptions, there's nothing booked until 12. I try to make as few meetings as possible for the team. I try to do a lot of my meetings for walking. I don't reply to every email. I just have these little rules and I call them rules. And I think that's an important distinction because when they're not rules, you're making a decision every time. And one of the point of a habit is you want these automatic behaviors. And so you think about how do I establish correct automatic behaviors for myself? 
that put me on the path to success. And so for me, it's like go to bed early. I only drink a few nights a week. I spend time with my kids because that is success for me. I mean, there is no success if it comes at the cost of my children or my family, my parents, any of that stuff. And I think that now more than ever, that's become hyper important that we're there for our kids and we're not bringing our stress home. They got enough stuff going on right now. The world looks different to them too, just as different as it looks to us. They don't have the cognitive tools always to deal with that. And I think that just putting those things into action and when you think of them as correct automatic behaviors, it changes things, right? So if you think about, there's a huge difference between saying, I'm on a diet and I don't eat dessert. So if you're on a diet and you're at a restaurant and the waiter comes over and says, what would you like for dessert? You have to make a decision in the moment. But if you identify with somebody who doesn't eat dessert, I don't eat dessert. I have a rule. I don't eat dessert. You don't have to make a decision. You just follow your rule. And then the thing that Daniel Kahneman taught me about this was nobody argues with rules. But if you're making a decision, people will argue with you. So if you're at the table with your friends and you're like, oh, should I get dessert? Should I not? Your friends are going to cajole you into that. They're going to nudge you and needle you. And you're going to get dessert and you're going to eat the chocolate cake and you're going to wish you didn't. And if you have a rule, nobody's going to argue with it. As long as you always follow your rule and you're consistent, nobody's going to push back on that. And so some of the other automatic behaviors I have is I never say yes on the phone. I never reply to an email past 8 p.m. And now there are exceptions to that. And that's when judgment comes in. But I think those are pretty good rules, right? You don't drive when you're drinking. You know, you have these rules for a reason and they help you establish the best behaviors to put you on the path to success. The problem is society is not going to tell you those rules. You got to come up with them for yourself. You have to think for yourself about what it is you want to do, what matters to you, what's important to you, and then what behaviors or rules do I need to adapt to create into habits that are going to put me on the path to success. Those little ones you offered are so good. Are there a couple other rules that you've adopted for yourself? I can't give them all away. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I'm a little shy and embarrassed about some of them, right? Like I, I only drink Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I make a point of walking and having meetings with friends all the time as a way to connect, even during a pandemic. I don't know what I'm going to do during the Canadian winter. That's going to be a different story. One of my rules is to spend time in nature. And I think that just being around people you love and respect and only working with people you love and respect. Our team is amazing. We don't have any deals with anybody that we don't trust. I just don't work with people I don't trust. We get offered tons of money all the time for people to come on the podcast. And I'm like, oh, that's repulsive. And I don't have to deal with that. And I think that that just saves me a lot of stress, anxiety, saves me a lot of consequences down the road. Well, Shane, I want to turn to a couple of fun closing questions. And as always, we'll do this in two blocks. So let's start with what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Chopping wood. Carrying water too? No, no, just chopping wood. It's actually, I've really gotten into it recently. I don't know if that's because I have a lot of wood to chop, but like it's it's fun. It's soothing. It, it's You're not on your screen. I'm in nature when I'm doing it. And it's just sort of me and this log in front of me. And there's something satisfying to picking up an ax and wielding it and striking a tree. What's your most important daily habit? No meetings in the morning ever. And what's your biggest pet peeve? inconsiderate people. Of course, that's the Canadian response, right? What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Uh, I think two, right? Like what matters most is who you share life with. 
and how you live life is way more important than how long you live life. There's a lot of people out there who are breathing, but they're not living. And I think that my parents have done a really good job instilling in me that anything can happen to you on any given day. So you better be living. And one more for this set. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? You have to think for yourself and you can't default to what other people tell you. Even during the pandemic, I mean, there's tons of public health guidelines out there. People are telling you what to think, how to think, and you need to filter that and digest it. And you can't just rely on it. Remember when they came out and said that masks don't matter? And then all of a sudden masks did matter. Well, there was no downside to sort of wearing a mask. You might look like an idiot in the short term, but there's no downside to it. And I think that those are the things where you just have to think for yourself and you're responsible for you and understand that nobody is going to save you, even though they have the best intentions. They're not malicious. They're just trying to do their job. They probably didn't want to cause a run on masks, but I think you need to think for yourself and nobody's going to save you and you're responsible for your own trajectory if you're an adult. Nobody's going to give you a boost. Shane, this is awesome. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks, Ted. All right, we're going to keep going here. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? Projected earnings. (laughs) The inevitable hockey stick. We're just catering to what people expect, right? Like we're in the process of taking a company or doing an RTO, so a reverse takeover and going public with one of our private investments and just seeing the way that the investment bankers make you fit into a mold of what they want to see. And then a lot of the companies that I admire don't necessarily fit that mold. Berkshire Hathaway doesn't really pay their board members. Shopify has, I think, six board members and not 12 constellation, a lot of practitioners on the board. And you just look around and you you start seeing these things. And the companies that I admire don't always fit into these boxes. And yet you get nudged at every twist and turn to fit into these boxes and check all these boxes. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting model, right? Because everybody needs to rely to some extent on others, whether it's a business in the capital markets, a fund with investors. And there are a few that have rebuffed it, but many who rebuff it don't survive. Yeah. There's definitely an element of play the game or else. What advice do you give early career professionals who come and ask for it? Oh man, find the smartest person you can and do whatever it takes to be in the room with them and don't have any ego about it. If that means getting coffee every morning for them, then that's what you do. It doesn't matter if you have an Ivy League education, just find the best people you can and associate yourself with them and make yourself indispensable. I mean, we have a rule around the office here that every job is your job. And how about advice that you give peers these days? Don't get distracted. Focus on execution. There's so many distractions in the world right now. You're only able to put so much energy right now towards work, especially now. It's more important than ever to not have any of that dissipate into things that don't matter and just execute, execute, execute. What is your favorite book? or piece of online reading of late? Oh, I just started a book last night called Ancient Cities, which is actually really cool about the life and death of ancient cities. I would say that's totally recency bias, but I actually enjoy it. I've started a lot of books recently and haven't read very far past a couple pages. So that would be one of them where I have. What's your biggest mistake and what have you learned from it? Well, biggest investing mistake is JCPenney. I got sucked in by Ron Johnson's vision of retail because this comes back to something we talked about earlier, right? Like this was the vision of retail I wanted. This is how I thought retail should work. 
this is the department store and me going like the world should work this way, but the masses, the world doesn't work that way. And the lesson there is the world doesn't work the way that I, I think it should. And it's not that I was wrong. It's that I was wrong for so long and slow to change my mind on that. And I've had other calls where I've been a lot faster to change my mind. I wasn't blinded by the charisma. A great example is like Big Larry Holdings, which we owned when I was part of a registered investment advisor back in the day. And then we sold right at the peak, I think in like 2012, 2013 or 2011, 2012. I don't remember the exact dates, but what we saw was this slow changing of the goalposts. And I wasn't able to see that at JCPenney when Ron Johnson, despite all of his charisma and despite me wanting the world to work that way, if you go back and and you're sort of less biased about it, you can start seeing the goalpost change. And I think that that wasn't good. (laughs) Awesome. Shane, thanks again so much. Really enjoyed it. Awesome. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 